This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, former FBI Deputy Assistant Director Peter Strzok. He details his career and his work on the investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 election. He's interviewed by Adam Goldman of The New York Times. Hi, uh, my name is Adam Goldman. I'm a reporter with The New York Times, uh, where I've worked for, for about four years. Uh, I cover national security, including the FBI, and I've reported extensively on the FBI's uh, Russia investigation known as Crossfire Hurricane. Um, I want to thank Pete for coming on and having this frank discussion with me. Uh, Pete actually came up with the name Crossfire Hurricane, so I'm interested in hearing uh, how, how he came to that, uh, how he came to use that code name. But before we get into the details of the book um, that you have written, that's out. Uh, Pete, why, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your counterintelligence background at the FBI? Yeah, of course. And uh, first, thanks to C-SPAN for hosting. And Adam, great to be here with you. Uh, I started in the FBI in 1996. I had uh, been in the Army prior to that, went through college on a ROTC scholarship, so went active duty, and then uh, entered the FBI actually as an analyst working domestic terrorism back in 96. Uh, saw the organization, saw the work that agents did, knew that was absolutely what I wanted to be doing, and so I applied uh, was accepted and uh, went down to Quantico in uh, 98. And then from there, left the academy and went up to Boston where I was assigned to work CI and did that for my entire career. Um, while I was in Boston, worked on the case which on a series of Russian illegals, which formed the basis of, you know, kind of the current or past television show, The Americans, but did a variety of kind of the bread and butter counterintelligence work that occurs in a mid-sized office, whether that's Russia, China, espionage, proliferation, economic espionage. Uh, and then from there, after being a, uh, a street agent, started moving up the management chain and did various supervisory roles. A lot of espionage focus, but then uh, increasingly a broader counterintelligence focus, uh, you know, working a lot of China, working a lot of Russia, but kind of the whole gamut of the, uh, the counterintelligence work that the Bureau does, uh, up to the point where I was uh, the deputy of the counterintelligence division, so the number two uh, of all of the FBI's counterintelligence operations. Uh, from there, worked uh, not only the Clinton mid-year investigation, but then also went over to Special Counsel Mueller's team, set that team up, staffed it out and structured it with the FBI personnel, uh, was removed from that uh, and returned to the Human Resources Division, where I was there for about a year until I was uh, terminated in 2018. Uh, Pete, once again, before we launch into this book, describe to us a little bit about the difference between what a counterintelligence investigation is and what a criminal investigation is at the FBI. I think, I think that that has been lost upon the public uh, uh, in the midst of, uh, midst of everything. Yeah, absolutely. So criminal investigations are frequently what the public thinks of when they think of the FBI. It's, you know, there's a bank robbery or there's some organized criminal and agents are out there trying to build a case. They're looking at violations of the law, which, of course, has various elements of a crime that you have to demonstrate with evidence, you know, up to and including in a courtroom where it's going to, you know, withstand adversarial cross-examination by defense attorneys. And you're, the goal there is to prove or not be able to prove that somebody violated the law. Intelligence work is really different. Now, counterintelligence isn't new. The FBI has been doing that for generations and generations and generations. You know, Nazi saboteurs coming uh, onshore, you know, in the Northeast coastline. And even before that, prior to World War II, 
looking at what foreign nations are doing from an intelligence perspective. That's really different from criminal work. The standards are very different. Frequently, the material and information is classified. There are things that if it was disclosed could, you know, get a source killed or destroy some very sensitive sort of collection that's going on overseas. And so the goal also is fundamentally different. It's not necessarily to prove that a crime occurred. The goal at the end of the day is to get an understanding of what any foreign nation, whether that's Russia, China, Iran, Cuba, you name it, what they're doing from an intelligence perspective in targeting the United States, because the FBI has the lead role in countering that intelligence activity. And again, up until very recently, it's a very, very quiet line of work. It's classified. Nobody talks about it. Every now and then a spy case will be made and it bursts into the public imagination. But by and large, the work the Bureau does in the counterintelligence arena is beneath the surface and something that just isn't talked about. Pete, um, why did you decide to write this book? For years, you've essentially maintained your silence, except when you've spoken to Congress. Um, and now you've come out with this book, which is you know, obviously highly critical of the president of the United States, President Trump. You know, basically accused him of being uh, compromised um, and, and people around him essentially being grifters. Um, uh, wh- why, why, why put yourself back out in the spotlight where Trump can torture you on Twitter? Um, because the threat he poses is too important to ignore. It was there in 2016. It continues to this day. And I wrote it for a few reasons. You know, one of the reasons was to have an accurate accounting of what occurred. There's been a lot of uh, recounting and twisting of the historical narrative by partisan um, individuals seeking to twist what did and didn't occur, which continues to this day. I wanted a book that could be relied on to be an accurate factual representation of exactly what we did through 2016, 17, all the way up to the current day. The other thing I wanted to do is get the reader into the mindset of what a counterintelligence agent thinks and how they see the world and why counterintelligence work is what it is, what we're concerned with, and why that's different from criminal work. And then the last thing, of course, is to highlight, as I said, the threat that continues to come out of the White House and Trump. Things haven't gotten better. The Russians are still attacking us. People need to understand why Russia is doing what they're doing, and also the unique threat that exists within the person of President Trump, and why that is so advantageous to Russia, and why Russia continues to try and get him, in this case, reelected. Why... Why should readers take your word over Trump? You have been cast as a villain, a secret member of a cabal, right, who wanted to take down the president. I mean, that is the narrative among Trump supporters, mainly based on your text messages that were revealed in which you expressed anti-Trump bias. So you claim, and the IG never found, Inspector General never found evidence who actually made any operational decisions based on bias. But you are—I mean, you are—you are among a uh, among a, a, a several FBI officials that Trump has targeted, and Trump supporters think are dirty cops. Tell me, why should the public believe what you're writing? Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I think that uh, you know my historical record and those who have looked at it stand on its own and speak for themselves. You know, part of what I lay out is this history of cases that I worked, the outcomes of those why and what we did and the reasons we did it. So it's very plainly there. It's able to be corroborated and people can see the facts and go back and verify them. The places they should look to verify them, the reasons they should believe me is all these independent looks that have been done. There have been two inspector general investigations over three years with 
15 or more attorneys and analysts looking at every last thing I did, every text, every email, every call, every note, every communication, all of which have concluded that not only me, but the entire team, that there wasn't evidence of any act being taken based on an improper motive. When you add on top of that multiple U.S. attorneys that the Department of Justice has assigned to take a look at our actions after the fact, when you look at all the congressional investigations that have tried and tried to spin the things that we've done, not to mention all the media, you and other folks looking at what we did, all of these things, all of these deep investigations have come up with no indication, no evidence that things were done based on improper considerations. Now contrast that with the president's behavior. He can't make it through a press conference or a town hall without fact-checking at each event, pointing out the numerous, frankly, lies, things that he says that aren't true. And this isn't a one-off occurrence. It occurs time and time and time again, and folks in the media and others have cataloged the literally thousands of untruths that he's uttered. So when I look at the targeting of us, you know, not only me, but others in the FBI who have been lumped into this crazy conspiracy, it is apparent to me that it's being done by partisans and it's being done specifically to undermine any sort of valid criticism or observations or investigations of Trump because he's scared of what's there. He doesn't want the truth known. And anybody, again, look at not just the FBI, look at people like Ambassador Yovanovitch and our Colonel Vindman, anybody who dares speak the truth is immediately attacked because they don't want the truth out. Um, this leads me to some things you write in the book. You know, on the one hand, uh, Pete, you are cast as a central villain in this narrative, right? Um, but when it's convenient for uh, when it's convenient for um, Trump allies, you are a truth teller, right? Um, Walk us through. Walk us through. Walk us through a couple of accounts in the book that sort of explain this. Um, I mean, it's almost like a conundrum, right? Uh, you know, walk us through how you handled the Comey memos, right? That he wrote about regarding uh, his Comey wrote about regarding his uh, conversations with President Trump, and also your role in interviewing uh, General Flynn. Right. And expressing that um, expressing that he didn't have any signs of uh, indecision or a deception, but yet he lied to you. Uh, walk us through those two accounts and how they fit into this conundrum. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the fact of the matter is I lay out the truth and on both sides of the partisan debate, people are going to find things that support their arguments and rebut their arguments. So what's immediately apparent is that some things, even to the same members of some of the right, are seizing on items that both tend to favor my credibility and on the other hand, seek to undermine it. And the example of General Flynn, you know, we went in there, interviewed him. He knew that we were there to interview him about conversations with Ambassador Kislyak. I mean, the ton's been declassified, in my opinion, horribly, recklessly, and, and dangerously. But I can now say, you know, we had, we knew, we had uh, reviewed the conversations that he had with Ambassador Kislyak. We knew that he had discussed things like uh, the slowing down or dampening the Russian response to the sanctions the Obama administration had just placed on the Russians for attacking the elections. We knew he had spoken about uh, a UN vote and asking uh, Russia to moderate or to vote a certain way on that. And so, before we even walked in the room, he had talked to the deputy director, uh, Andy McCabe, and told him, you guys know what I said. Why do you need to talk to me? You have it. And at the same time, you know, in response to that, you know, asked if he needed an attorney, decided he didn't need one or want one, invited us in, you know, two hours later, didn't tell, as best we know, anybody in the White House, and sat there knowing what we we're going to ask him. 
two or three weeks after he'd had conversations about this with the president, with the vice president, with the chief of staff, with the White House counsel. So he knew full well what we were going to talk to him about. But he sat there and time and time again, when we got to those two critical questions, he didn't tell us the truth. And not only that, but he didn't, a lot of people when they lie or when they're dissembling, they tend to have tells, you know, they'll cover their mouth, they'll lick their lips, they'll look away, they'll, you know, re-ask the question. He didn't do any of those things. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't lying, but it does mean there was something going on there that either he's a very good liar or that he thought he was telling the truth or something else was mentally going on. So of course, when we left and you know, we're talking about it, my interview partner and I on the way back, kind of saying that was really odd because he had quick answers and it didn't, he didn't give any kind of visual or other in what the Bureau calls indicia of deception, things that would make you think he was lying. But at the same time, he clearly had. And, you know, he pled guilty not once but twice to two different judges, orally and in writing, that he had lied to us. So, you know, we get back and we're trying to explain, you know, he, it makes no sense because all the background I just told you. And then yet he doesn't choose to tell us the truth. And he doesn't seem he's not doing anything that looks like he's nervous or looks that looks like he's lying. Well, so when I relay all that, and of course, some of that goes in the, our write-up of the interview called a 302. Some of it comes up later in discussion in an interview I did with the Office of the Special Counsel. Folks on the right sees on that to say, look, the interviewing agents think he didn't lie. They're credible experts. They know what they're talking about. They're absolutely right. Well, that's me. I'm the one who said that. I mean, that's, it's not how I said it, but if you're going to hold this up as a standard of somebody who is absolutely credible, well, then you can, on the other hand, seek to pillory me and say, I'm, you know, not credible and biased and, you know, deeply seeking to... You're adopting the 302. So on the one hand, you're writing an accurate 302 because you, you, you write that Flynn doesn't exhibit signs of indecision. But on the other hand, you're, you're part of the secret plot to take down Flynn. Can, can you explain that contradiction to me? I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it either. I mean, look, the 302 represents what he said in the interview. That is something that my interview partner and I wrote. My interview partner took the lead on it. He gave it to me. I made substantive changes based on my recollection that, you know, confirmed with him, hey, I think this happened and that. We agreed on the substance of that. And that is what he said. That is why our names are on that 302. You know, I gave it to somebody who's an excellent, you know, proofreader to sit there and say, hey, does this grammatically make sense? And there were some, you know, hey, you've got a split infinitive here, a passive voice there. That's common with 302s that you'll have somebody review it. But of course, this has been seized on by some in the, on the, you know, the crazy extremes to say, oh, you know, this was, you know, rewritten several times. There's a missing 302. There is no missing 302. My interview partner began the drafting process as always occurs in a 302. Somebody takes the lead in writing. They kick it over to their partner who will sit there, review it, adjust things, add things, because you have, a, you have to bring together the recollection of two people. And that's what occurred. We sat there, we came up with it. And that 302 represents what Flynn said. And everything, that 302, the notes I took, the notes my partner took, all of that has been turned over not only to now uh, the Department of Justice, but was provided to Flynn's attorneys. So there's nothing unproduced here. There's no secret here. But again, it serves as this kind of this lie as grist for some great conspiracy theory that, you know, there's all kinds of untoward activity going on with the interview of Flynn that just didn't happen. The one thing I understand, too, it's also part of this contradiction slash conundrum. If, you know, your critics say, critics of the FBI and of Comey's, Comey's leadership, you know, they say you went in to entrap Flynn, right? 
that you set up this interview and you entrapped them. But when you read about documents that have now been declassified and made public and handed over to Flynn's lawyers, you see that Jim Comey, um, and you write about this in the book too, you see Jim Comey on the 23rd decides that you guys are just going to ask them questions. But then by the 24th, the day you interview uh, General Flynn, Comey's decided you can read back snippets of the of the electronic intercepts, right, from the from the, his discussions with the Russian ambassador Kislyak. If you're going to entrap Flynn, why give him the why give him the benefit of 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 reading the snippets of what he actually said on the on the electronic intercepts? I don't understand that. Why why give him the ch why give him the chance to tell the truth? Well, look, this plainly was not an entrapment of any sort. This was not a, a perjury chap in any way, shape, or form. Uh, what's interesting about that morning, as you point out, is not only overnight did you know, Comey think about it and say, hey, you can read him, you can give him some of the things you said, but also in my notes from that morning, hours before interviewing him, I note that the goal of the interview is to give Flynn the opportunity to tell the truth about his relationship with the Russians. That was the purpose of the interview. Now, surprisingly, the Department of Justice and recent filings in D.C. with regard to Flynn and withdrawing his plea makes no mention of that, which is odd because it directly rebuts some of the things that, he's that the government is arguing in the recent filings, and which I hope that the court now will get to the bottom of as they uh, you know, hold some hearings to try and understand what happened with the withdrawal of Flynn's plea. But at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. We went in there because we needed to understand what Flynn's relationship with the Russians was. We had looked at Flynn and in the late fall and early winter had decided, you know, we're not coming up with a lot. And we were looking at him to see whether or not he was uh, a potential match for what George Papadopoulos had stated to a representative of a friendly foreign government, right? That there was this allegation that uh, the government of Russia had offered to assist the campaign in the release of material that would be damaging to Obama and Clinton. We had looked at Flynn because of a lot of connections he had to Russia as potentially one of those folks who might have been the person who heard that. We were moving away from that to the point that in the fall and early winter, up to and including the director, had been briefed, hey, we're probably going to close this case because it just doesn't look like he's a likely candidate. And everybody had agreed. And so that had occurred in the December timeframe. When we get these intercepts between Flynn and Kislyak, that radically changes our understanding of uh, Flynn's relationship to the Russians. And suddenly he becomes, again, a focus of investigative interest because of his relationship to Russia. So there's a lot of this conspiracy. Oh, you know, the, the Washington field office wanted to close it and the seventh floor of the FBI stepped in. It's nonsense. Another case. Yeah. Uh, Pete, another theory, uh, another theory is, um, you know, there was an, in there was an intentional leak uh, in the Washington Post about uh, Flynn's calls with Kislyak, right? That, um, you know, the right is very upset with and say damaged Trump's presidency and was meant to take out Flynn, uh, that leak. But isn't it true you already knew about the calls well before that was revealed in the, the Washington Post? I think as early as January, right? The Obama had asked to, to ask the intelligence community to figure out why Putin hadn't responded to sanctions. You guys find in your holdings that Flynn, in fact, had talked to Kislyak. Did that did that leak matter? What was the explain? Or were you going to interview Flynn anyway? Or was it just convenient for you? I think you write about it in the book. Uh, walk me through that. 
Yeah, so the link mattered. And, you know, as you know, our, that in the FBI, one of the roles I had was leading, you know, investigations of leaks to the media. So that was, you know, for many, many, many years, whether as... I don't condone that, by the way, Pete. I don't condone Well, I, I, I'm an ardent supporter of the freedom of the press, but I'm also an ardent supporter of prosecuting people who illegally leak classified information to you guys. So uh, I, can, I can hold both those things in my head at once. But look, as, as a deputy assistant director, as a section chief, as a supervisor at Washington Field... I investigated countless, countless uh, illegal leaks of classified information to the media. Put several people in jail for doing it. You so probably investigated me, but I'm not going to ask about it. Well, look, Adam, we don't investigate. We don't investigate reporters. <laughs> That's just not something we do. The First Amendment, you know, I think there's some you know, Supreme Court ruling that uh, you know they, they the, the rules of the race are set, but the outcome is not. So. Um, those, that leak, in particular, the one to Ignatius, did have an impact on our investigation. I was very concerned, and you can, if you can look at my kind of uh, communications uh, I made at the time throughout this period, I was deeply concerned about the impact that leaks were having on our investigations. And again, to the, you know, the kind of crazy conspiracy theorists that think this is all part of an organized plan, look to the record, look at all my repeated concern about the way the government was hemorrhaging classified information and how it was damaging and impacting our investigations. That are, those are not the words of a man who is seeking to undermine Trump. Those are the words of somebody who wants to quietly conduct an investigation to get to the bottom of the truth and is discouraged, disappointed, and bothered that all these all bits of information are coming out. So in the case of that Ignatius um, article, that wasn't ideal. I mean, it put us on a much more compressed timetable. Uh, but what it did do is it brought things up into the open. And frequently when things become public, while not great, one good thing that it does is it gives you a reason to go ask about it. So if I know something through a classified way, and if I go talk to you, it's going to burn that source. If there's a big newspaper article about it, well, that gives me a chance to go to you and sit down and say, hey, you know, I read this article like you did. I want to talk to you about it. Can you explain it? And so that was part of the, the impetus that, that pushed us on the path to, to interviewing Flynn. Uh, one last bit on Flynn, and then we can we can move on. I, you know, I think one of the arguments has been uh, you guys were very concerned in Sally Yates. The I guess she was, you know, the acting attorney general, right? Was very concerned when uh, Vice President Pence got on went on TV and said, you know, Flynn told me he didn't talk about sanctions, which we know is, is patently false. Um, uh, when when you heard that, when you when when Pence relayed that story. What happened? What were you thinking at the time? Did it just elevate why you needed to, why you needed to talk to Flynn? Was this now even a greater concern? And you know, I think one of the things that uh, I, I can't remember if it was in the in the in the motion to drop the charge against Flynn, but it was an idea, or Barr might have said it. I, I can't remember. This was you know, this was a political issue. Flynn lying to Pence was not a crime. This was, this is, this is something that should have been dealt with in the, the, the White House. It's not an FBI matter. What's, you put that in context. Well, yeah, so I disagree with that. The fact of the matter is we didn't know what was going on when Pence made that statement. We knew it wasn't true. Now there are two options. Either Pence has been lied to and he's repeating that lie, which he claims is the case, or in the alternative, there's a lie going on seeking to cover up this conversation between Flynn and the Russians that might include others in the White House, including Pence, and most importantly, potentially including Trump. Keep in mind, Russia had just intervened in our election to help elect Trump. That's undisputed. 
it is, you know, even, even between the intelligence community assessment and others, it is very clear and undisputed that Russia intervened to assist Trump in getting elected. And so we're trying to understand what the nature of that relationship was, understanding what Russia did. And that at the end of the day, it's important to know whether or not Flynn was knowingly lying to us or not telling us the truth. But at the end of the day, the much more fundamentally important issue and question is, was he doing that because of something Trump either had told him to do, otherwise directed him to act? And it wasn't, yes, go in there and figure out what Flynn said or didn't say because you already know it. The underlying question was, is this something Flynn was doing in the context of the rest of the incoming administration? And interestingly, that key question, Mueller asked, you know, Trump refused to sit down and be interviewed, so they agreed to answer questions. At the end of the Mueller report, you can see all the questions that were asked as part of an appendix. In that set of questions is a very detailed list of his interactions with Flynn, what he knew about the calls with Kislyak, getting to this question, this critical question. And you know what Trump responded? just didn't answer the question at all. Not a single word, not even a, not gonna answer this one, just left it completely unaddressed. Now I know our attorney general has said that the president was fully cooperative and bent over backwards, but the fact of the matter is this key concern, the entire issue driving our interaction with Flynn to understand what the Russians were doing, particularly as it related to others up to and including the president has never been answered. That's why we were so interested in Flynn. And, and that's why it's so concerning that he didn't tell us the truth. Uh, you, were, you had already been removed from the special counsel's office by the time uh, General Flynn was charged, uh, had reached a plea agreement with prosecutors and charged with lying to the FBI. Were you involved in that charging decision? Uh, no, I wasn't. Charging decisions are made by the Department of Justice. That is something that prosecutors do. Certainly agents have interactions and discussions about it, but that is a DOJ call. And in this case, it was made by the special counsel. One thing I'd point out that is clear from uh, both material in the special counsel's report and that has been made public, Flynn was under investigation for a lot, for a variety of potentially illegal activity. First and foremost is unregistered activity on behalf of the government of Turkey, which others around him have been charged uh, for that activity, certainly for allegedly uh, excluding information from his clearance paperwork. So there are a variety of things that, that play there. And the fact of the matter is the phrase, a plea bargain, it's a bargain. There is something that you're agreeing to admit guilt to in exchange for not being, in many cases, not being prosecuted for other potential violations of law. So the idea that this is some de minimis activity that was a, a you know, an attack as part of a, a perjury trap and there was no other, you know, adverse information there. Well, okay, if you want to back away from that, then let's go look again at all this other potential in, uh, activity that occurred that was investigated that the government agreed not to pursue as part of this plea. And the fact of what's happening with Flynn is a window into a broad dismantling of actions that the special counsel took. This isn't anything about the FBI. Think about it. Roger Stone's sentencing and the way the government has behaved in that, that is directly kind of unwinding everything the special counsel's office did against him. The same with Flynn and just going on and on and on down the list of things that director Mueller had done that now this department of justice is seeking to unwind in a way that's, that's absolutely a, a travesty. Well, 
uh, Pete, I think uh, Attorney General Barr has described your investigation as, quote, uh, one of the greatest travesties in Amer American history, uh, end quote, which leads me to, to, let's move forward a little bit, leads me to another, some other stuff you write in the book about um, what happened after, um, what, ha what happened after uh, um, uh, Andrew, after, sorry, uh, Director Jim Comey was fired in May of 2017. You know, it's something I, I thought about a lot, and I, and I think you, 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 you write about some of this in the book. After um, McCabe, well, you know that, you know that um, Comey is, is documenting his conversations with Trump, right? And he's very alarmed about uh, these conversations, and so thus he's memorializing them, right? In these, it is actually some of this is even in this new Showtime documentary. In these, in these memos, Comey is relaying, and he's also relaying to you guys that he doesn't like McCabe, right? And he is singling out McCabe, McCabe's wife. You know, ran for you know state legislature in Virginia as a Democrat. Um, and even in when Comey is fired in the firing letter uh, uh, that Mike Schmidt writes about in his book, he says that he says that, you know, one of the reasons he fired one of the reasons he fired uh, Comey was because of McCabe's involvement at the end in the Hillary email investigation. And I can't remember the exact language, but Trump says it's essentially unconscionable. I, I believe it's May 15th. I think you're right. It's May 15th that the FBI decides to open up this obstruction and counterintelligence investigation uh, into the president of the United States. I mean, this is really unprecedented territory, right? Um, you know, you suspect uh, Trump might be an agent of a foreign power, right? Russia. Given what, given that that was Mr. McCabe opening that investigation and given his history with Trump, right? Should he not have done that? Was he conflicted? I think a lot of people could look at that and say that's retali that was a retaliatory action by by the deputy director that he is getting back at Trump for singling out his wife and saying bad things about her and he was conflicted and he shouldn't have done that and in a minimum he should have gone to to Rod Rosenstein right the deputy attorney general since Sessions was recused and sought his approval. A do you think this was an abuse of power? Do you think Andy should have stepped aside and B why not go to Rod and get top cover from DOJ before opening like the most politically top one, maybe the most politically toxic investigation, you know, in the bureau's history. So it's absolutely merited. Um, part of what I uh, talk about is the discussions we had shortly after the inauguration going forward about the fact that we had sufficient predication to open a con uh, counterintelligence case on the president. And we didn't do it for a variety of reasons. I mean, all the reasons you talked about, about just how the, the, the legal issues, the constitutional issues of doing so down to the kind of nitty gritty about how do you investigate the president, right? You're not going to surveil the Secret Service motorcade or an Air Force One flight. You can't go get his trash out of the Oval Office. So investigating 
you know, or even getting financial records. You can't do that quietly just based on how many there are. So for a variety of reasons, while we all debated doing it, <clears throat> you know, I was kind of steadfastly arguing against it because I didn't think we needed to do it. But that sort of discussion, certainly within the counterintelligence division, was going on months before the actual decision to open the case. And it was only after Director Comey was fired that it was like, we have no other choice. All, nobody wanted to open that case. Nobody was eager to do it or seeking to find a reason to do it. It was the opposite. We were trying not to do it. But that firing was so grievously impactful on what we were doing, both in terms of obstructing the investigation potentially, as well as, you know, kind of pointing to what is going on. Because remember the very next day, he's crowing about it to Ambassador Kislyak and uh, I think Lavrov in the Oval Office. You know, I, a great weight has been lifted. And the only reason we know about it is not because U.S. press were in the room, but because Russian press are in there photographing. And that's how America finds out about that. As to the top cover, keep in mind, too, immediately after, within a week of this being opened, uh, Deputy Acting uh, Director McCabe, along with Rod Rosenstein, the DAG, go up to the Hill, to the House and Senate, and they sit down with a gang of eight. And so Senate Majority Leader McConnell is there. Speaker of the House Ryan is there. Um, Chairman of the House Intelligence Committee Nunez is there. Chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee Burr is there. And they lay out in detail the cases we've opened on Trump, the perjury investigation on Sessions, the, the Attorney General that had been opened, and all these other investigations precisely to do exactly what you're asking about, to give the ability for a bipartisan group outside of the executive branch to challenge those decisions, to ask questions, to make sure they're comfortable with them. And you know what? None of them, all their questions were answered. None of them objected. All of them gave their imprimatur to what the FBI and DOJ had just done. So this wasn't some act of retribution done in a spate of anger. This was a product of a very long buildup that we had actively been trying to not do. And when we finally precipitously had to do it because of the president's actions, we immediately went up to the Hill to make that a much more, uh, um, you know, open decision and something that involved a bipartisan inclusion and uh, briefing about. But you've been criticized for not going to Rod Rosenstein and seeking his, you didn't need to, right? But for not going, at least consulting with him before you open those, the obstruction slash counterintelligence investigations. Why, why not do that? Uh, well, I, I mean, that's a question for the for the acting director at the time. I can't tell you that uh, Rosenstein had been in the office for, uh, what, I think a week. I mean, not very long at all. And the question was, we had just, not knowing anything about him, we had been arguing, Director Comey had been arguing with the Department of Justice to open a perjury investigation on Attorney General Sessions based on his not telling the truth uh, during his Senate confirmation hearings about his interactions with the government of Russia, whether he was lying or not. I mean, he clearly wasn't charged, um, but that was of some concern to us and had been referred to investigate by the Senate. Director Comey had been rebuffed time and time again in his conversations with uh, Rosenstein about opening that case. He just didn't answer the question. Then add to that the fact that uh, the Deputy Attorney General writes a letter, which has to do with the Clinton investigation, which has nothing to do with the reason, the actual reason why Trump fired the director. And yet somehow that's being used as, a, as the fig leaf to provide justification for the firing. Now there's a reasonable concern as we look at that, what are the deputy attorney general's motives? Now, again, he's new, 
we're seeing this pattern of behavior where we're concerned about the president and his national security advisor, his campaign manager, his attorney general, you know, the, the list goes on and on and on. And now we have a brand new deputy attorney general who writes a letter that is used as a pretext for Comey's firing that has nothing to do with the actual reason that Comey's fired. And it is a reasonable question within the FBI's mind about where are this man's motivations? Why is he acting the way he did? And is this something where he is acting in good faith? where he's being duped, which I ultimately think, you know, inexplicably he allowed himself to be used in that way. Or we also have to consider in the worst case, is he acting in concert with the FBI or with the, with the White House to illegally, or not illegally, but to commit obstruction by firing Comey? And so all that's in the, the kind of mind of, of those of us in the FBI. And again, I can't speak to, I don't want to put myself in uh, the acting director's head or the general counsel's head, but you know, I'm, I'm speaking for sort of how I saw it and, and how we talked about it. Um, two more quick questions because we're running out of time. But one, let's touch on a uh, let's touch on the dossier, uh, uh, which has taken on a larger than life significance in the Russian investigation. Um, that was a secret wiretap. Wiretap. You guys, you guys uh, sought and obtained a secret wiretap application to do electronic surveillance on Carter Page, a former Trump advisor. Turned out the material you used in part to justify getting this application was from a former MI6 uh, intelligence official who had provided what is known as the dossier. Turned out there were some serious issues with the dossier and, uh, and the, De the Department of Justice Inspector General later found that the, the applications that were used to get it were riddled with errors. Okay. My question for you, Pete, on this subject, and you write about the dossier of the book. Everybody knew at the FBI, including yourself, including DOJ officials, that this, this FISA application could probably one day be scrutinized by Congress. You knew probably everything you were doing were going to be scrutinized by Congress. On, on this sensitive aspect of the investigation, seeking this wiretap application, why push forward with the dossier that hadn't been vetted? I understand that the source was reputable who provided to you, and he himself had a good reputation at the FBI, but the underlying information that you used to get the dossier had not been vetted. Why, why push forward and use it? Why not, why, not be, why not be cautious and say, hey, you know what? Let's, let's examine all this, and once we get to sort of a comfort level, we could say 50% of it's correct, 75% of it, let's use it and move forward. Why, why do it at the moment? Because that's the common way in a counterintelligence investigation you approach intelligence that you receive. Certainly the way you view that intelligence in many ways, before you can really dive in and try and corroborate it or not, a lot of it goes to A, what's the history of the source? And I want to be very careful to say I'm not confirming or denying, you know, what you said and where you said steel worked. I mean, I think the most that's uh, been said is that you worked for a foreign government. Having said that though, when information comes in the door from any source, even if we haven't yet run it to ground, a lot of things go into how we view its potential, its reliability and its potential reliability. We look at the history of the source, their access, their training, information they provided in the past. We look at some of the broad context of the information. Is that consistent with information that we've previously received? And in the case of this FISA, all those concerns were highlighted. I mean, there's a page long footnote that talks about our understanding of where the information is coming from, that it might be opposition research in nature and flagging all these issues for the court about our concerns. This is certainly on the application and the first application for a FISA. 
and um, you know, kind of laying out where we have gaps and concerns, what those are. So it isn't ever the case with intelligence that particularly if we have it coming from a source that is reported reliably in the past, that we sit there and wait. I mean, think about it, if you have a, an allegation of terrorist activity that comes in from a CT source that has been reliable in the past, alleging something's gonna happen. The FBI doesn't sit and wait to act on that to wait and get a FISA until we can run around and dig, dig down and verify every last little bit. Because the fact of the matter is, the broad contours of what Steele's material provided were consistent with what we had been seeing. You're talking, on the, the 20, other, 000, you're talking on the 20,000 foot level Russian interference using, using associates of Trump to-, to That's right. To interfere with, right. That's right. And the, you know, and the last point I'd make is like, we were close, like I remember, before we had talked with DOJ about getting a FISA on page before we ever received the steel information. And this has been, this has come out in, in uh, transcripts that have been released through the, the, the Hill on various interviews. Prior to ever hearing the first thing about Steele and his reporting, we had talked and we're fighting with DOJ about trying to get a FISA and it was a very close call. I mean, I, you know, somebody described it as 5149, whether or not we had enough. And my point was, I, I was much more interested in let's get we are running out of time. Given the magnitude of what we're facing, we need to either get a FISA up because we're wasting time. And if we don't have enough for problem cause, then we don't have enough. But let's stop goofing around. If there are concerns, let's highlight those concerns. Let's get this in front of the court and let the court decide. Because what we have to get to the bottom of is too important to be waiting. And so again, I, you know, this has been, there are clearly problems with the steel material. That's not how unusual. Do you, hold on, how do you, there are there are clearly there are huge problems with the steel dossier. Yeah, uh, but Adam, that happens with sources all the time. I, I, I can't tell you how many sources in my career they come in with stuff that's inaccurate or is made up or they were drunk. I mean, it just source after source after source. Anybody who's run a source, journalists who've run sources experience, I guarantee the same thing, and that's just part of the job. We don't run understand. sources. We don't run sources. We we run we meet with people who provide us context. Yeah, whatever helps you sleep at night, Adam. That's fine. I'll let you. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you call it whatever you want. Um, uh, um, let's 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 uh, let's let's move on from the dossier. Um, the Attorney General uh, William Barr has appointed John Durham, a federal prosecutor from Connecticut, to review the FBI's handling of the Russian investigation. Um, at least the origins of it, um, uh, and it seems like the scope <laughs> has grown. We're, we're not exactly clear what the scope is of this thing. Um, but uh, Durham, you know, Durham has reached out. He has interviewed people um, about Russia's the Russia FBI Russia investigation, including on, you know active FBI agents and uh, officials there. Um, have you you have not heard have you heard from Durham? I have not. Why? I don't understand something. You are a key villain in this drama, in this narrative. Uh, Trump supporters believe that to be so. How, how come you haven't heard from Durham yet? Uh, I don't know. That's a question you have to ask him. From what I've seen or, or read, in, uh, Director Comey, Deputy Director McCabe, myself, you know, other kind of pretty key players have not been approached, let alone interview. And I don't know why. You don't know why. What's if Durham reaches out? What's your position? Durham reaches out and wants to talk to you. What's your position? 
I'd certainly consider it. I mean, look, I have a couple of concerns. I mean, he has a reputation for decades of being a tenacious, objective investigator, and he's handled very charged uh, investigations, whether it's the destruction of tapes from the RDI program, whether it's looking into the interactions with Whitey Bolger in the Boston office of the FBI, whether it's looking at the firing of U.S. attorneys. But I'm really concerned when I see things like his deputy, uh, who has worked with him, as I understand, for decades in a very, very close capacity, who felt compelled to resign, to quit the team last week because of at least what is reported in the Hartford Current, concerns about uh, political pressure being placed on the investigation. Uh, That's unheard of, one. And for somebody who is essentially a teammate of him for decades to feel so compelled that their conscience can't allow them to continue work, that's a huge red flag. And it joins this parade of prosecutors who have quit the teams. I mean, look at the four attorneys who left the Roger Stone prosecution team. Look at the lead attorney who left the, uh, the Flynn prosecution. I, some of those attorneys I know, and they are dedicated men and attorneys of integrity. And I think the world of them. I don't know Ms. Danahy, but she, again, has an absolutely sterling reputation. And so when I see her quit, that gives me a lot of concern. When I hear when the IG releases a report talking about the origins of the crossfire investigation, which is my recollection and the truth of exactly what happened. And for Durham, a US attorney to actually go out and make a public statement that he disagrees with that, you know, I don't, A, I don't know why he makes that statement. That is unheard of for any US attorney or US attorney's office to make comments like that in the middle of an investigation. And more importantly, that's absolutely at odds with my understanding of the truth of what happened. So there are all these flags out there that concern me, and I just can't help but be worried that between the attorney general and the White House, this has become a politically driven process that whatever comes out has to be taken with a huge grain of salt. Uh, You you raise an interesting point here uh, with Durham's uh, Durham's dispute with the Inspector General, Mr. Horowitz, over the the predication, the open crossfire hurricane, the Russian investigation. You guys opened a full investigation. A full investigation allows you to go to the FISA court, right, to get a to get a, a, a wiretap application, right? But Durham says you only it should have been a prelim. What's your explain to people that what that dispute means to you? Well, I, I don't, I mean, I've seen that reported. I don't know if that's at the heart of what, uh, what Durham agrees or disagrees with. But look, the, the, there is a clear factual level of predication needed for a full investigation and for a preliminary investigation. The inspector general spends a volume, I mean, page after page after page, explaining what that standard is and how we met that standard. That's absolutely a discretionary call. If we go in and we've got sufficient um, information and allegations to merit opening a full investigation, that is absolutely, in my opinion, in my history, a reasonable decision. The other thing that I'd point to is, you know, Crossfire Hurricane, you know, the, the term of art is that that allegation was opened as an umbrella investigation. It was right. an allegation in which there were, the person who allegedly received this offer is unknown. And so you open what's called an umbrella investigation on that allegation. And then under it, you're gonna open individual cases on those people who might fit that. And in my experience, sometimes the umbrella is open as a full and you open preliminaries on all the individuals underneath. But that's all very, that, that, that varies by supervisor and case agent. I have seen in my career it done all kinds of ways. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it is clear, undeniably and unequivocally, the facts we had at hand were far more than sufficient to merit and justify opening a full investigation. And that's exactly what the inspector general found. 
the, 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 one of the biggest criticisms from the right is never found collusion, even by May of 17, you never found quote unquote, uh, collusion or conspiracy, however you want to describe it. And the investigation should have been shut down. Um, was there ever talk earlier at the FBI of shutting this down, shutting this down earlier? I mean, how long, how long were you going to, how long were you going to investigate this, this? Well, look, there was never discussion of that. And the fact is that there was an overwhelming volume of information that we had that merited looking into. Senate Intel Committee just released a thousand pages, almost a thousand pages, detailing this pervasive set of counterintelligence concerns that we faced. And the fact of the matter is the threat from Russia is never going away. The FBI is always going to be looking at what Russia is doing and seeking to understand how they are interacting with those elements of our government to achieve their foreign policy goals. So as part of that, to sit there and say this is not merited, that there is no collusion, A, that's false. Mueller could not demonstrate to a legal standard sufficient to bring charges any sort of behavior that would fall under this kind of nebulous word collusion. But the fact of the matter is, he specifically also stated that it was insufficient to bring charges, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't information there. Mueller's job is as a prosecutor. He's either going to bring charges or he's not going to make the allegation because he doesn't want to unnecessarily tar somebody's reputation or cast dispersions on him. That's a completely different standard than what counterintelligence investigators look at. We're looking at Russia. We're trying to understand the nature of that relationship. The things that were going on with the Trump campaign and then the administration dwarf the routine sort of counterintelligence work that occurs on a day-to-day -day basis and try to, trying to understand what Russia is doing. So some assertion that this wasn't merited is specious. I, it's just absolutely unsupported by anybody who's ever worked counterintelligence. And I think anybody who has done that would look at that and, and find that assertion laughable. Well, Pete, uh, some, might make the some might make the argument that uh, this investigation should have been closed earlier and everything that came from it is the fruit of the poisonous tree. I'm sorry, say that last part? I, I think there are critics of the Crossfire Hurricane who say the investigation should have been closed much earlier uh, and everything that came from it is the fruit of the poisonous tree. <laughs> well, so how do you, okay, how do, those, how do those critics, and more importantly, how does the American people, how do they look at a fact pattern where we have a national security advisor who didn't tell the truth to the FBI and pled guilty about concealing his contact with the Russians? How did they explain a former campaign manager who had undisclosed contact with a oligarch and people connected to the Russian intelligence services who he was giving detailed campaign data and later pled guilty to a variety of crimes relating to his interaction with that same oligarch? How did they explain a foreign policy advisor of the Trump campaign who lied to the FBI and hid his relationship with the government of Russia? How do they explain a deputy campaign manager who was also involved in the same sort of illegal activity with the Russian oligarch? How do they explain an informal advisor and the guy named Roger Stone, who it appears had conversations and interactions not only with WikiLeaks, but potentially Julian Assange, who are involved in releasing information that we believe was stolen by the Russians? How on earth could any American citizen look at all that behavior and say, FBI should just ignore it? This isn't worthy of even looking into. I, to me, that just that, that makes no sense. And I, there, there's no way that anybody looking at that fact pattern could come to any other conclusion that what we did was appropriate and was proper and should have continued in the way that it did. 
Um, uh, one, one, one other thing. Um, do you do you think, as you look back on the steps you took um, and what happened these last few years, what what are your biggest what are your biggest regrets? I mean, clearly you regret the text messages, correct? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, so you know, I mean, of course. Let me. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know. You know. You you did you and you you acknowledge this in the book and you apologize, but you did harm to the bureau. You know that you did harm to the FBI, and they are trying to recover from this. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what's important there is, of course, I regret sending the text, and I regret the way they're weaponized and were used to attack all the work that we did. But I also I, I want to draw a fine point here. Those texts were, I'm suing the Department of Justice because those texts were released illegally in the middle of the night in secret to reporters and were, who were told they can't attribute that to the Department of Justice. That illegal release in turn allowed partisans in the media, on the Hill, in the White House and elsewhere to attack our work that we were doing. So while I regret it, at the same time, those were personal opinions expressed in a private channel. These weren't things I said on Facebook or Twitter or in front of a unit meeting. These were personal opinions like every FBI agent has and like every FBI agent may express in private. So I get, yeah, it was stupid to write that in the text. But let's also be clear about assigning responsibility where it appropriately lies. And the fact of the matter is their illegal release was done in a way to cause partisan benefit to undermine the work that was going on. That was neither, you know, to use a legal term, that was not foreseen or foreseeable. That's nothing the Department of Justice has ever done in the middle of an IG investigation. Before they had even completed interviewing people and reviewing information. And oh, by the way, that when they get to the end of it, they say, oh, there's no indication that, yeah, these look bad, but there's no indication that anything was ever done based on improper considerations. So I just want to be clear that we, we lay, you know, that those things where they, where they belong. Um, to your broader question, I, you know, I think my biggest regret looking back is that we didn't appreciate the power of social media in terms of how the Russians might use that with disinformation and with what, you know, historically is called active measures. Um, it's something the Russians have always done. I mean, clearly their interference in our elections is nothing new. It goes back decades, generations. I mean, they were trying to plant stories that Scoop Jackson was a homosexual. They were planning stories in the papers uh, about, I think, El Salvador, but certainly why, why didn't, America. Why didn't the FBI understand the magnitude of that? That seems to be, on top of everything, that seemed, that seemed one of the, the cheapest and most destructive things the Russians did, which has polarized this country. That's right. Uh, and it is. And it was something that we didn't appreciate at the time, how they might leverage social media to sort of explode these divisions within American society and on social issues. And that's something I think, you know, shame on us, because the Russians were certainly doing that within Russia. They were certainly doing it uh, in their near abroad in countries surrounding Russia and their political and, um, elections and environment. But we, we didn't take, and we is big we, we, the FBI, the CIA, the State Department and others, if anybody was sitting there saying, hey, we in the U.S. might be vulnerable to it, it wasn't making it to the team. And that's certainly something, particularly when you look on the terrorism side, I mean, there was all kinds of concern about how YouTube was being used to sort of radicalize, radicalize people within the homeland, right? But nobody looked at that and said, hey, well, you know, if Anwar al-Awlaki can do it, 
what could the Russians do? And, you know, that's my failing. That's our failing. And that's something that, you know, again, in retrospect, I, you know, had we seen it earlier, we could have, you know, it might have made a significant difference in 2016. What do you, what, what do you make of um, um, the allegations that Republicans are using, uh, uh, using or uh, relying on um, Russian generated, you know, plans, operations, you know, activities to sort of damage Joe Biden. It recently came out that a member of Ukrainian parliament was uh, identified by Treasury as a Russian agent, somebody that Rudy Giuliani had actually met with. And it seems to be that that's okay, right? Um, what I mean, what are you seeing now that that's that really disturbs you? Well, Adam, it's not an allegation and it's not okay. I mean, this guy, Durkacz, is the, is the name of the guy that, again, in Treasury last week said that he was not only for 10 years, but for 10 years, he was an active Russian agent. And this is the person who's been providing information to the uh, Senate Homeland Security Committee about Biden. So they're actively in receipt and acting on Russian disinformation to the point where, you know, there's been public reporting that people within the U.S. government, within the executive branch, went and warned them to be careful about the information they're receiving from this guy because it is Russian propaganda. And so the fact that then you see the continued sort of attacks into Biden based on information that has been demonstrated as of last week in an official statement by the United States government and the Department of Treasury to be the product of an active Russian agent, what the hell is going on here? How is that possibly okay? And then, yeah, of course, to see, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani running around with the same guy and reporters from OAN making documentaries about unearthing the truth about Joe Biden. Again, sitting across a coffee table from this active Russian agent, that's nothing that anybody should tolerate. And, you know, you I rem- I'm old enough to remember when, hey, you know. Last question. Would you have given Rudy a defensive briefing or would you have opened a counterintelligence investigation? Well, I think it depends on the context of what he knew or should have known in the context of what he's meeting. So, I mean, I can envision a lot of scenarios where either we would have given him a defensive briefing or if we had information that he knew better, there was some sort of other illicit activity or winning activity that might have gone another way. Okay, that's it. You've answered all my questions. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for for taking the time. Yeah, of course. Thanks for uh, talking with me. Thanks for listening to the Afterwards podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.